Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. there welcome to episode 151 of love that album podcast my name is morris thanks so much for joining us this show is proudly part of the pantheon podcast network several months ago i was asked if i knew of the music of quebec prog folk band harmonium and if i wanted to speak with their songwriter and lead singer serge fiori for the show at the time I'd never heard of the band, so I did a little investigation into the back catalogue. I found out they'd recorded three studio albums between 1974 and 1976. Not a huge discography, but really rich. The amazing thing was there was a very definite stylistic progression between the albums. The first one started out as folksy in a bit of a Laurel Canyon sort of way. Uh, The second album sort of developed some of the signs of prog to the final album being really fully blown art rock. Montreal was a city that was very devout to prog music, and yet these albums aren't prog in the sense that I understood from bands like Yes or Genesis, or even from some of Harmonium's contemporaries in Montreal. Regardless of how it's labelled though, I discovered I really, really like their music a lot, so I was very keen to get Surge onto the show. If this was only going to be a conversation about Harmonium's music and its legacy, that would have been plenty, but there's another element to it. In 2020, all of the band's music was rearranged for orchestra by Simone Leclerc, a Montreal-based composer, and assembled as Harmonium Symphonique. The fact that this was able to happen told me not only how adaptable the music was, but how popular the band was in the 70s that such a project could even be considered. I discovered that they were really huge and revered across Canada, not just Quebec. They even had a dramatized TV show about them. Apparently it's shit, but that doesn't take away from how big they must have been at the time to have something made about them. The Harmonium Symphonique is called Histoire Sans Parole, Stories Without Words. Forgive my terrible French accent. And it's been released as a beautiful four record and two CD set. In my conversation with Serge, you'll hear us talk about this new recording, but we'll also talk about the original Harmonium music and the other bands that were around at the time. And we also speak about the path taken for this music to be played by as few as three people on the first album to it being given a whole new life by an orchestra. I had a lot of fun talking with Serge 
and I hope that you enjoy the conversation. I want to put my thanks out to Christian Swain over at Pantheon and Lisa Roy from Rock and Roy Entertainment for making this conversation possible. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, Joe will now give you the contact details and we'll go straight into my discussion with Serge Fury. I'll be back at the end to talk about episode 152 of Love That Album. Stick around. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 151 of Love That Album. And I'm immensely excited to have on a Zoom connection from Quebec. I'm not sure if you're actually in uh, Montreal or just outside Montreal, or should I be saying Montreal? Montreal. <laughs> no, I'm in uh, Lac Saint-Jean, uh, which is it's about 500 kilometers. Oh, okay. So you're not in Montreal at all. I go uh, sometimes now. I mean, I, I was in Montreal all my life, but I moved here uh, last year. Very nice. The great Serge Fiori of Ammonium. I hope I'm pronouncing everything correct <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love i love hearing this with your accent i just, oh, love, it. I just love that accent <laughs> as i frequently tell americans and uh, canadians i don't have an accent uh, <laughs> me neither <laughs> oh good exactly neither of us have an accent once again congratulations on the release of this amazing new orchestral interpretation of your harmonium material the new album is called histoire sans parole stories without words before we get into talk about that new recording, I'd like to talk about the actual Harmonium era to start off with. As I said before we started recording, I confess that the music of Harmonium was new to me up until a few months ago. So I've been listening to the first couple of albums. I ordered myself copies of the first two CDs and only about two, three days ago, I got Le Ptad arrive yeah. in the mail to me. So very, very excited. But I wanted to ask a little bit about the prog scene of Quebec and of Montreal because I've been finding out that there were bands which I also took a listen to like Slosh which had something of a funk edge not dissimilar melodically in to my ears to harmonium but with a more maybe aggressive approach i don't know if that's yeah. the word to some of the music Another band, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, Conventum, which sounded more dark and dissonant to my ears. I 
wanted to know if you could tell me just a little bit about the scene in the early to the mid-1970s in Montreal. Was Harmonium and these other bands, were you like compadres? Did you hang out together? Did you swap information? What was the scene like? Well, it started in 72. And um, like for us, we weren't supposed to be a prog band at all. <laughs> it, was just, mm. it, was just, it happened while I was writing it. But yeah, everybody knew each other. Uh, we played some shows together. Big shows outside with all the bands and everything. And we went to see each other. I mean, I saw October, October quite a few times. I loved Pierre Flynn. You felt the connection and you felt the vibe. Like in Montreal, you really felt the vibe that something was going on. You know, everybody was feeling it. Because before that, it was more uh, chansonnier, troubadours and stuff. Something happened. I don't know if something was in the water or <laughs> or in the pipe. <laughs> some, something happened and, it, and it, we just felt it. And there was Beau Damage, which is another big band, which was more pop. But all those people were trying to do the same thing, which was in French, put an emphasis on the music that wasn't done before. First of all, it's very hard to sing in French those kind of songs, you know, it's like uh, you, have, you have to find around the right sounds, the right tonality. And uh, so there was a lot of work. Finally, we all got out together. <laughs> we all got out the same time, 74. And uh, wow, it just whew, skyrocketed. The bands that sung in English, I guess, who were predominantly from the UK, so bands like Yes and Genesis, were they really, really big in Montreal? Was the explosion in these Quebecois bands in relation to any of the bands that you heard previously outside of Quebec. You mean when the, when those bands came to Montreal? Yeah, well, just in general, it was like hearing Fragile and Close to the Edge. It was huge. It was just huge. Genesis, uh, and I also know that they did some of their first shows in Montreal. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, they were starting to play and tour and practice. And Montreal has been for a lot of bands like a starting place because the audience just went nuts. And it's nice because it's French audience. A lot of them don't know English, but they don't care. It's just the music of it, you know. And there was such a big influence on the scene in Montreal. I mean, I listened to those bands all the time. I would see all the shows. I remember seeing Lamb Lies Down on Broadway at the Forum. Wow. You know, my God, it's like, uh, what's happening? (laughs) What's what's going on? It was a nice influence, but we had to get rid of that. My goal was to put acoustic music with rock and prog music. So with the 12 string and all that, like trying to, you know, marry the old Quebec sound and the new one, you know, so... I would try not to listen too much to those bands, but it was really hard because I loved them. The first time I played your debut album, just called Harmonium, I was thinking, this doesn't sound prog to me. This sounds like they've been influenced by, notwithstanding that I don't know much about the singer-songwriter type of artists who were prevalent in uh, Quebec at the time, but it sounds to me like you were listening to maybe the Laurel Canyon sound or maybe, you know, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. Joni Mitchell is my goddess. That's because I've heard that I, I started writing lyrics not in a straight, linear way, because I heard an interview of her and she said, when I write something, I have a camera on left, camera right, upstairs, downstairs. So lines come in from different places. You're not saying, I just, I woke up this morning and I had a coffee. That's just like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like who cares? But I tuned in very much for her. And uh, I think that's where it started for me. It was really Johnny Mitchell that did it for me. But the first album was was not Prague at all. It was just folk influence and singer-songwriter, like, you know, James Taylor and Johnny Mitchell. So I had no clue I would get Prague. Some with the second album, the Saint Saison, then it's something went somewhere else, you know. Mm. But there was no intention of that. I didn't know people said we were prog. I didn't know it. It's really confusing in a way to sort of think, I mean, what defines prog? Is it multiple time signatures? Is it not pop song structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus? If it's like that, then okay, yes, your music is prog, but you don't have multiple time signature changes. A lot of it sounds that I can recall to 4-4, and we'll come to this later as well. It sounds to me more like you've always been 
been a classical sort of person because, you know, within symphonic works, you're exploring themes, going from one place to the other. It's not like in popular music, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And a, a lot of what you do, certainly by the time you get to Leptard and uh, Le Sancte Saison is like that. Yeah. It, it sounds to me like you've been equally influenced by classical music. I agree. I think that's where the title of Prague came from, but it's not that at all. It's very classical. And again, I didn't know I was writing classical melodies and, mm. and have the classical Italian influence. Uh, I wasn't aware of it. I was just writing and stuff came in. It's just when we got the orchestra in for Leptin that I realized and the director made me realize that this is very classical structure. And the fact that I would go from one place and turn right and go completely some other place and I think makes it that it was modern and whatever. Now I accept Prague because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take I'll take the title. Sure. But, but, but when we did the symphonic album uh, and I was in the hall with the 80 musicians and I heard Simon Leclerc's arrangement, then I realized. Hold the thought. I definitely want to come to uh, Simon in a couple of questions down the road. But would it be equally fair to say that as much as the, the classical influences and the prog influences, well, that you're a Beatles fan, I hear that strong sense of melody. And I've got to say, like, one of my favorite songs off the debut album, and please forgive me if I'm not getting this right, uh, is it Viel Cora or is it Yeah Yeah Cora, where you're finishing off with that? Is that a tribute to Hey Jude? Where the Beatles sit in your life? Well, it's all because of them. Then I'm here. You know, it's it's not complicated. 12 years old, watching Ed Sullivan show and crying like a baby and saying to my parents, uh, you don't realize what's going on right now. I was only 12 and I told them that. I said, the music just changed and the world just changed. What I hear, even as a kid, this is going to go very far, very quick. So then with my friend listening to all the albums all day long of the Beatles and, and just not understanding how they could do that. Just trying to understand. It's, it's just genius. It's just just so amazing. It's certainly a common story. I've heard so many musicians say, I was watching Ed Sullivan one night and I decided I was going to become a drummer. I was going to become a guitar player. And I actually spoke to a man who said to me, well, after watching A Hard Day's Night, he knew that's when he wanted to become a film director. So there's taking a different tack, but the Beatles influenced people in so many ways. But Hard our, our Day's Night, when I, I don't know how many times I went to the theater to see it. But there's also the fact you want to be a pop star and be run after by girls. You know, we just, <laughs> that atmosphere is just so fun. You know, it's just so great. But me was the writing. It doesn't make sense. It's like every song, every song is a masterpiece, you know? And then I, I turned around and I went to Led Zeppelin, you know, totally rock and roll and all that. So it's like it was the two biggest turn on that I had. The show at the Forum of Led Zeppelin, I said to my friend, Jimmy Page cannot play those licks live. <laughs> Oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can. And he throws you right in your face, like, like you just, oh, my God, I have to go back to school because I, you know, I didn't have the chance to see the Beatles live. So it's when I saw Zeppelin, I said, oh, my God, this is possible. This mm. is, some people can do it. I want to 
return to your own music because that's predominantly what we're here for. Uh, <laughs> so by, by the time we got to your second album, La Cinq Saisons, it's still got that beautiful acoustic and melodic approach that you had on the first album with something of a pastoral feel. And yet the structure of the songs all of a sudden are getting more complex than from the debut album. And the 17 minute tune, Histoire Saint Parole, it's got several parts featuring Mellotron, which to my ears gives it that pastoral feel. And maybe that's where the prog comparison starts. But you've also got a tune like Dixie, which has a strong feel of 1920s jazz. And I was playing this to my wife and she said, oh, that's so playful. And I thought, yes, that's a that's a really, really <laughs> great expression. But either way, this album is a big difference to the first one. So I wanted to ask you, what were you wanting to do differently? By the time you said you'd done the first album, did you say, right, I've done that thing. I've done the folk thing. I want to do things completely differently or how did it evolve and how much of a say in the arrangements did uh, Louis and Michel have in any of your music but I guess in particular in going in this direction well okay when we we, we toured on the first album for two years and I couldn't stand it anymore because like just playing with my left arm you know and I had to do all those uh, soprano voices because we were only three and I was like and I said no no this is not where I want to go it's, it's not where I want to go and I want to be a folk singer it's not that at all so when I met uh, Serge Loca, the keyboard player, he just got a Mellotron. I remember inviting him uh, in my house to just show him some songs and see if he could try it out. He was trying to connect his wires and all that. He was on the floor and I was playing the song and I see his hand going on the Mellotron. And what I heard there, the sound in the plane, was that was it. That was it. I, I had to write from there, you know, from that place. Mm -hmm. And once... That came together, then the writing made sense and the, everything glued together. I forget it's five seasons, you know, the fifth season is Trois the inner season, blah, blah. So the first one, spring, summer is Dixie, because I heard there's Dixie bands in summer in Montreal, and all that came uh, came together. And then I was, it was what I wanted to do uh, completely. So we played live again for a long time with the Saint-Saison, and it was... That was very fulfilling. When you started playing live again to play these new tunes from the second album, did you change anything when you replayed tunes from the first album to accommodate your new vision with making yeah. things a little bit more complex? Great question, because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> exactly that. We couldn't play the song the same way anymore. And then we were five musicians and we had a horn, we had the, the keyboard itself. It's an amazing player. So we revamped the whole songs and then the that was great. I was like, you know, because I liked the, the songs of the first album. I just, I just wanted more out of the arrangement. That's all. So, mm. Yeah, that, that was a gift. It was really a gift. I was watching a couple of videos on YouTube, and one of them was like a half-hour documentary, Harmonium in California. And by that stage, you'd already sort of gone to the seven-piece. So this is obviously late in the band's life. And the music just seemed to have this huge intensity. The music of the three of you in the beginning, this gentle pastoral feel sort of gave way to something a whole lot more intense. as you went on you wanted to become I don't know more like yes or something just something a lot more not necessarily louder but just something I don't know I, I can't think of a better word but no you got it you got it the whole setup was very intense I remember uh, when we were rehearsing it I didn't want to pre-arrange I think I wanted every musician to play his heart out and just so I would sing the song and once the, the, the lead guitar would do the line was improvising it was like okay that's going to be there that's what you're going to play and the drummer farmer was like you know the whole thing we did in the rehearsal we didn't write it down we didn't do anything else than just play play and play and it grew the intensity was was right there 
wanted to ask you a bit about your thoughts. Like prior to recording this new project, Harmonium Symphonique, uh, Histoire Saint Parole, I wanted to know what was your impression of other recordings where, so like rock bands had worked with orchestras. So I'm thinking of things like you know, Metallica went and recorded an album as rock band with orchestra, or Portishead had gone and done an album with an orchestra. There's been orchestral interpretations of Beatles music, and Ben Folds in recent years has worked a lot with orchestras. And back in the day, John Lord composed the concerto for orchestra and rock group back, I think, in 1974. But yeah. what you're doing with Harmonium Symphony is something completely different. And as I said, we'll come back to that, but I wanted to know what were your feelings along the way with bands who had gone and interpreted their previous work with an orchestra, orchestra and band? It was all great stuff. The only issue I had with it is that if there's a voice, if there's a rock band there, it's not symphonic. It's not classical. For me, you know, if I would sing over the, the recording and if I'd play my 12 string and blah, 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 no, it's just me singing with an orchestra on it. I know we'll come back to it, but when Simone and I uh, met, there was no, no voice, no, nothing classical, symphonic, every line played by the orchestra. And once I started hearing some stuff, I said, ah, okay. We got it. But did you enjoy like the, the Deep Purple stuff and the Metallica oh, yeah. stuff? I mean, was that still something that was pleasing to your ears? There's nothing like a, a symphony orchestra. There's nothing like it, plus all the sounds you can bring to it. There's just the atmosphere, the mood is so big. It's so nice and it's like a trip. You just lift up. Everybody tried to imitate orchestras with synthesizers and stuff. So if you take that out of the way and you put an orchestra, you don't have the same presets. <laughs> okay, so let's come to the new album, the orchestral interpretation, Histoire Saint Parole. I want to look at what the origins were. Now, I was saying to you before, I've seen a couple of videos online, and one of them was, I think, from 2018, where Amonion was being... Homage. Homage. So I'm not sure what the origins of that were, but seeing these, and yes, there were singers, there were local yep. Quebecois singers, I'm sure were all really, really big over there, but there was this full orchestra and doing all your great music, but with this orchestra, was that where the spark came for this new project? That on, <laughs> that on. It was a surprise. We didn't know, didn't know there would be an orchestra. It was just, no, they didn't want to tell us. It was a surprise. So we were sitting there and then it went to commercial and all those chairs come in, 60 chairs and all that. And all the, then I see all the musicians sit down and, and then Simon Leclerc comes, he's the director there. You get all the arrangement and then Patrice and show all of the singers. And when I heard the beginning sound that Small did, the introduction, it was like shooting me in the, in the heart. You know, like, I went and meet Simon after the performance and I said, you. <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> the look on your face and the rest of the band in the audience, the TV camera goes to your faces and what you're saying about feeling shot right through the heart, you had this look like, where did this come from? I had no expectations. I, I, I Kill me now. This is brilliant. Yeah. No, vraiment. It's like, I can go now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But at the same time, Simon was doing a show with 300 musicians on Montreal yeah, the mountain. And with the producer, and the, they finished the show and they said, the producer said, what can we do more, you know? And they both said and said, we can do three, the three albums of Harmonium symphonically. So that's when they called me, I met them, and they were very scared because they had to tell me that my voice wasn't there. It wouldn't be there. Yeah. And I applauded. <laughs> <They didn't laughs> They didn't understand, like, man, that's it. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in. Uh, but I got to say, like, the vocals, not just your lead vocals, which are really very, very distinct with the falsetto and some incredible harmonies on those original songs. The vocals were a major part of what you originally did. So I find it fascinating that you say, no, I don't want words here. I don't want not just my voice, but apart from choirs doing ahs, I don't want any vocals on this. And the words, I'm not a French speaker, so I have no idea if you're singing well, you've already gone and said we're not writing words about I'm having a nice cup of coffee. But I imagine that that was a strong part of the creation of these original songs. How in your mind did you say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to give this up? For the reason that while I was playing it all those years, 
I heard it instrumentally in my head all the time. And actually, I was trying to be an instrument of my voice. Yeah, the words are extremely important. The stories are extremely important. But that's not what we were doing that, at that time, you know? It was like, but I knew that the melodies would hold on. They would make it. I, I knew it would. You know, the string section, the old hobos, and the, I just knew it. So for me, that was the defiant way of doing it mm. and Simone agreed because if he would just accompany the band or me or okay what's the point he did a lot of that in, in his in his time and uh, he didn't want to do it anymore so tell me a little bit about Simone Leclerc's background now I did read that he was a screen composer and to be honest with you that didn't surprise me at all because there's something about the new interpretations of the music that sound very much like a great film score yeah the music is really telling a story in the way that a lot of great soundtrack music does so tell me a bit about simone well that's it i think simone because uh, he worked a lot in the states warner brothers studios and all all the great studios for film mm-hmm. and that's why we we thought he was the only one who could do it he was the only only maestro that could do that stuff and make it like a soundtrack it's music for film without the film <laughs> Well, that's great. And it made me feel that right away. It's an album that I can listen to, not because uh, because I wrote it, I composed the thing, because I don't even think about it. I don't care if I'm there or I'm, it's just I close my eyes and I'm on a road. That's his knowledge. That's He's the best for that. He's, he's just so, his imagination is amazing, but also the respect for the, the original music and the way he puts all of that together. So when we did Left Out, it was Neil Chotem that wrote all the, the orchestral stuff. He was the director of the Montreal Symphony. Mm-hmm. And Simon studied with him, which is very strange. He understood what Neil wrote harmonically. It went from there. So the tunes that Neil had gone and arranged for uh, Leptad, did Simon say, right, well, nothing to do here. This works perfectly. Or did he rearrange Prologue and the Epilogue and a couple of other tunes that had got orchestra on uh, on that album? No, the Epilogue and the Prologue was pretty much Neil's writing that was replayed with a much bigger orchestra. But when you do that, it's for sure you have to adjust things because the structure is very heavy. You know, the, the 80 piece orchestra is heavy. So to make the round, the right uh, arrangement is, is, so you have to adjust stuff. You have to change stuff. But basically the harmonic six note harmonic writing is needed. For that, for the, the tunes that was never written classically, that's the work you really have to work very hard. Well, that's something that I'm always fascinated by is arrangement. I think that arrangement is an equal partner with composition and taking the music created by a small number of instrumentalists and expanding it to the many. You, you've got to decide, do we keep the tone or the mood or do we change it? You're playing around with dynamics. You may be playing around with keys and tempos and with time signatures. I mean, maybe not so much in this case, but in other contexts. So I wanted to know, did you and Simon in the beginning of this project establish any rules as to what was sacred or did you say to him, go for it? come up with whatever you want to come up with and then I'll see what I think or did you just say no I've heard what you did at homage I know you'll do brilliantly but did you speak about arrangements before he started this yeah we, we spoke about you know the, the only thing important was keep the feeling of the song doesn't mean you're gonna write it the same way you know it's like it, it was, but what Simon did and he told me he would do for five weeks he didn't write one note I sat in his studio and listened to the three albums in his earphones all day long to catch the way I wrote, to put in his head my writing, what I choose, what I, the, the way I move with the, all that. That's all he did. And then he started writing. But like you say, I just said, I don't want to see you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want to hear from you until you send me a demo in, in three months. I just, mm. And that's another thing. So, yeah, go for it. I did another show before, which for a circus in Montreal with all of the songs with uh, three kids that are just out of their minds. And I we, we did all the arrangements of the old songs mixed with the, the version of the, the old song. And we just went rock and roll and we went totally nuts. And it was another way of playing those songs. And I just loved it. I don't want to stay like lost in the 70s. I enjoyed it. So when he sent me the first demo, I just couldn't believe it. What was the first tune that you listened to when it came back? He wrote it in the same order that the, the albums are done. I mean, uh, this album is done. So I heard it exactly as it would be at the end. The intro, the prologue, the machine, the same song. That's something that I was finding really interesting because often we know that there's an art to creating a sequence on an album. A band can record songs in any order, but they say, right, this is how it plays out best. And yet for Histoire Sans Parole, the new album, it's not like, right, here's the first album, here's the second album, here's the third album. He's chosen a different sequence to play because he's telling a different story. Did he ever say to you, look, this is why I hear this order different for this interpretation of your music? And did it feel strange to you? No, no, exactly. That's like, because if, if we do the albums again in order song by song what's the point if there's no point into that it's no it's, it's it's done and also to make the orchestra work from one song to the other with the like you say the dynamics the, the moods the things he had to rearrange to reorder it. he had to he wanted to it was a completely new interpretation and i just loved it what you had named on leptad as prologue at the beginning and epilogue at the end and this album has And that was the first surprise, you know, it's like he starts with the end, right? Like there's a little entrada, the little intro, the the end of the the time starts. I just love it. I wanted to talk about a specific tune just to sort of like give the listeners who may not be familiar with this work yet. And I say yet because I want them to all go out and listen to this and buy the album. I wanted to talk about the contrast in arrangement from the Ammonium original to the orchestral version was Chanson Noir from Leptard. And it's one example of a song that has multiple moods in it and is hugely different in the orchestral version from its original version. I don't understand what any of the lyrics are about. Like you, I'm just sort of focusing here on the music. On passe toujours des mains blanches aux mains sales Tout est bien qui finit mal La ville à mort, ça divise tout ton corps Ça crée un faux départ Quand l'homme qui vient d'entrer, c'est le même qui sort You've got a, a samba at the start of it, which sounds to me very like uh, Astro Gilberto. And you go to something of a, a soft shoe, jazzy feel. And then there's something like later on in the tune that sounds like it's, I, I'm listening to this in a late night piano bar and I'm the last one there on the bar fly. All these, all, and, and that's just three of the moods. There's like multiple moods. There's other things in there. This is not the traditional verse chorus, verse chorus structure of a pop song. And then Simone's arrangement is lovely but it brings different images to my head and the final section sounds like lush and even slightly melancholy
once again as music in an old movie as opposed to sounding like it's being sung by a man who's got life's regrets on his plate which is what's in the ammonium version and I mean I use Chanson Noir as my example here but it could really apply to anything and when you heard the orchestra not just reading the arrangements on paper but when you heard the orchestra how did you feel the first time you heard this and thinking wow he's gone somewhere different with this was it what you expected from reading the manuscript first of all i can't read music okay there you go (laughs) take that out of the equation (laughs) that settles it (laughs) when i heard the demo i think i i I took a big whiskey (laughs) (laughs) perfect answer (laughs) i just went Wow, this is magic. This is just magic. And uh, it's, it's funny you say that because the, the, the intro of Chanson Noir is an homage to Gilbert. Wow, okay. I picked it. Very good. You see, that's the thing. He plays with it, he brings it somewhere else, but it's the same origin. It's the same basic feel of the song. So that's why I say he's, he's the master of rewriting stuff. You had this wider sonic palette to work with. I remember I remember being in the hall when you recorded it in the Symphonic Hall in Montreal. And it was one cry after another cry after another. It's so touching, that, that project. It's music that was done 45 years ago that he brings back into another uh, galaxy. You know? It's just, he's amazing. And yet, I know a lot of people sort of talk about, oh, the music of 40, 50 years ago. I mean, we're talking about the 50th anniversary of a bunch of great rock albums, like 50 years is a long time. And the classical composers are somewhere in the next world and they're saying, hold my beer. You know, and, you know the music of, the music music of Beethoven and Chopin is still being played 200 years later. The music of Bach is being played 350, 400 years later. It's, and we're talking about 50 years, like that's a long time. No, it will, ne- it will never stop. You know, actually we're babies <laughs> as far as we're concerned. Like the Beatles in 500 years, it's going to be amazing. And mm. that's, I did, but I didn't mean it in that way. I meant it that I never thought I would write something like that and that we would become classical. Never in my mind would imagine. It sounds like you completely gave yourself over to this, which is absolutely a delight. But do you ever hear like from other songwriters that they feel very possessive of their music? Because ostensibly what's happened is you've given your babies, as it were, to another person to do with as he saw fit. And that never went through your mind like, oh, I'm feeling a bit possessive about this. You just thought, here, take, do something wonderful with it. <laughs> take care of my kids. I can't stand them anymore. <laughs> I want them out of the house. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Go, man. Go for it. Just go for it. Because uh, that's the only way you can get somewhere else anyways. But something about Snow is that he would never do something that I wouldn't like. That's for sure. Mm. So we've listened to it regularly. And I, I had some issues at that. Uh, the first writing, I did have some issues and we changed it. To come back and change stuff, you have to go further you can go, you know, and then you can correct, not the other way around. I don't want you to do this, I don't want you to do that. And the guy's like, <laughs> paralysis. No, it's, no, it's no way. I wanted to bring up one other tune that I really, really loved. And this was an, a rearrangement from the first album. Forgive me if I'm going to butcher the name. Un musicien tonte de autre. And the original version of this to me had this once again i said before laurel canyon that had this gorgeous personal folksy feel very laurel canyonish orchestral version like everything else has this wider scope and there's a moment you hear for a brief portion the snare drum comes in and the brass is playing this motif and it sounds like it's Gershwin to my ears and that's something that I never heard would have imagined from the original
the second and the third albums, they had a more proggy feel in mind, more orchestral and structure, 17 minute tunes, 10 minute tunes. But was there a revelation to you from the first album with their orchestral feel any more so than the second or third ones? Because they're maybe more difficult to bring something to with a full orchestra. Well, uh, yeah, the, the, the scary part about that project was the first album for me. It was like, uh, oh my God, oh my God. But again, you're dead on with Gershwin. Because the best example of Gershwin is Pulainstein. Pulainstein was our big hit commercial radio machine. so much and I played it so much I just can't so I said to Snow something completely left field and I gave him the example of Gershwin and he did the most scary arrangements like all these weird things with the I just fell in love again with that song you know and Musien Parmi Tandot was a sing-along and show which finished with that and all that everybody was up dancing singing and all that what, what do you do with that without the lyrics how do you get there I, it's a, and you just nailed it we were very scared you didn't sleep a lot was Simon always confident in uh, no I will bring you the right thing was he nervous at any stage oh I don't want to disappoint Serge and the rest of the band how did he feel we were both shy about it you know looking at each other we were both shy I didn't want to tell him I wouldn't like something he didn't want to <laughs> <laughs> really two kids uh, yeah yeah he was freaking out sometimes like a lot he has the confidence and the talent to know that that it's going to be resolved that's for sure and i had confidence with him totally 150 while i was having another look just this last couple of days at the booklet in the box set it's a stark reminder of the times that this project came to bear fruit that it was recorded in. I'm recording this with you in late 2021. And this was recorded last year when the pandemic was new. And I'm seeing these photos and it looks to me like the orchestra is seated further apart from each other. There's the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. The orchestra is sitting far apart from each other. And there's smaller range photos where you're seeing musicians with masks on their faces. So can you tell me anything about how that was organized. I mean, I, I don't know what the lockdown measures, what the rules were in Canada or in Quebec in particular, but how did this get organized? I, I'm trying to think of the right words, but I, I imagine it's a big thing to to organize an orchestra to be playing in times of this pandemic. Yeah, it was the sitting down meetings and saying, whoa, usually a string section, they're all on one on the, on the other, and they create the sound being very, very close together. We can't do that. It has to be six feet. Every musician has to be six feet from the other one, which creates three problems. The arrangement has to be so clear that even if they don't really blend because they're not on each other, you have to make it blend sound-wise. So the recording engineers, one was from California and one was from Montreal. They worked together to buy, buy a video, uh, work together on placing the right microphones, the right place and all that. But once we started doing that, the stage wasn't big enough. So we had to build an upfront stage 20 feet longer to, to set everybody up so it could work. But the drummer and the timpani and all that is at 100 feet from Simon directing. That's almost impossible because he's looking at them, trying to pull them in the rhythm and they're trying to look at him. <laughs> it was very, very complicated. The recording was extremely complicated. Were there issues with latency? So like, say you got your percussion section at the back of this hall and was there like a fraction of a second? I'm not just talking about Simon as conductor, but so like, you know, the snare drum player at the back have to react like even a fraction of a microsecond after he would have heard the string section at the front. Exactly. And once they started rehearsing, that was one of the first issues that, that came up because they were always late and they were usually they won't even feel because they're close to everybody. But that's what they heard. So like, so Simone would bring them back, you know, okay, all of those measures, you have to be one fraction of a quarter in front, you know, amazing. It's just incredible work. 
And we had 16 hours to record the whole thing, not more, because of the budget. Did the orchestra have any time to rehearse? They hadn't played together in eight, eight months because of the pandemic. So they came in. We all came in. The arrangements there. Okay, go through one. Second, third time, record. Amazing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This album is a miracle. These musicians of the highest caliber, not just technically, but there's so much emotion and feel. I mean, I, I, look, I'm not a classical musician, but within the rock world, I'm sure, you know, you spoke a lot about, or you worked a lot off feel as well as instrumental technique. And, you know, we don't tend to think of that so much within the classical world, at least I don't. The fact that you're saying that from the time of the first note being played to the time of that's a wrap is 16 hours. It's incredible. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, it's impossible. I didn't think about it when it was being recorded. I didn't think I was not checking the time. You know, it's just but that's the way it happened. And, uh, and like you say, the feel. Some of the musicians knew very well harmonium and uh, music. Others didn't at all. And I think they pulled each other. There's stuff in there. And I'm so happy you talk about it that way. And I appreciate it very much what you're doing for that project because it's it's very very special for us. you something now that's not about the music as such but once again in this beautiful package the first thing before i even open it up there's this beautiful piece of abstract artwork on the front i looked up like on the back of the box who it was and is uh have i got this right jean-paul repel is that Riopel. and i understand within montreal he was a hugely important artist tell me a little bit about his background and did you ever get a chance to meet him no because he, he left uh, early and i mean he wasn't uh, but he was as big in france that he was in quebec he's like huge the daughter of Riopel always refused to have his artwork on a pop thing or a prog thing or <laughs> even a classical thing but because she was such a fan of harmonium oh wow she said yes so we, so we didn't expect it so she went through some of his work the only thing that was suggested to her is, is the multicolor of the music and the, and the arrangements of it. And she picked that one, sent it, and we looked at it and, okay, done. <laughs> <laughs> Next. And what's weird about it is when I did the launch and, and all the stuff, I, I was at the Hotel Intercontinental in Montreal, right there in front of the hotel. It's the Parc Jean-Paul Riopel. Never thought about it. So it's like, Yes, the things happen, you know. How well has the album been received by the general public? I mean, I know you're you're only selling off the website at the moment, but how's it been going? I mean, are old died in the wool harmonium fans accepting this, or are they saying no? The original for me forever was has it been embraced? Completely, you know, went for it, and we're almost platinum. We just went for it, and I, I'm so so pleased, you know, to uh, that they would be happy about it and, and, and love it and love the work that was done all the musicians that's the touching part and it, and it was the first time that an album wasn't in any record stores no streaming blah 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 it was just our site the only place you can get it that's it mm. and we broke all the records we broke all the way of doing things they wouldn't even recognize us for a prize at that disc and all that until nicolas lemieux the producer fought for it and said it's not because we sold a lot <laughs> we're not allowed to 
you know, so creates new ways of doing things. Now, I guess the nice thing is that, shall we say, sort of the traditional classical repertoire, Ammonium Symphonique, can be part of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra's repertoire for years to come. You don't have to be in Montreal and just like five, ten years from now, they can pull this out just like they'd pull out the Beethoven symphony cycle and the works of Fiori as well. Can you imagine that? <laughs> this is, that's why I'm shocked. I'm in shock. I can't imagine that. I just, it's just, you're right. You know, they're, and they're, we're going to do the show starting next June. I was going to ask whether the performing arts are back out and working in Montreal at the moment. They're starting uh, next week. The full audiences can be together it's going to be the first time in a year and a half and the orchestra which we're going to do the, the shows they won't have to be wearing masks and being six feet i mean and uh, uh, spectators also so next june we're starting the tour for uh absolutely magnificent i'm so excited for you i hope a performance is streamed i think we will it's just like for and for us i want to i want to keep it i want to save it i want to tell you again that i appreciate so much what you're doing right thank you for talking with me no but imagine you're at the other end of the spectrum in australia which is again insane for me the fact that the music exactly didn't have words for that project makes it that the music now is really universal and that's the, the gift you know? see i've never been frightened at the idea of listening to songs in languages that i don't understand i say right okay the voice is another instrument which is how a lot of musicians actually do consider their voices i mean i might not know what is actually being sung but i can make my own interpretation think oh this sounds like it's a sad tale and the song that i mentioned earlier on uh, sorry i'm gonna mispronounce it again which i love and i thought all right i want to know what this sounds like such a sad song but what's this about and then i sort of did a google translate and found out it was you writing about a lack of respect for uh, people who grow old and they're forgotten about At least if the translation was something to go by, it's just written so beautifully. And I thought, okay, good. Now I know this one, that's enough. I've never been afraid to listen to songs where I didn't understand because once again, the vocals are part of the music for me. So I think even the original Ammonium albums, to me, they're still part of a universal language. And I reckon I could play this for anyone here who like me doesn't speak any French and they would still say, wow, that's incredible. You're doing things with your voice there, falsetto and there's even when you're not doing falsetto it's still very distinctive and i can't understand why someone would listen to the thing and they ah, i don't understand what he's singing i'm gonna do, i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna throw that away again you're dead on because uh, all the, the the english bands that come to montreal to do their shows most of the audience doesn't speak english and they don't care but a lot of people in other places do care in the sense that they want the whole experience English with music, you know. But I don't believe in that. We played Canada for I don't know many tours and halls were all filled up and people were even singing the words they didn't understand. So <laughs> it's fine for me. Too. Actually, I have more problems in France because of my French accent than anywhere else. You know? I know I should be letting you go, but I've still got a couple of questions. One that's just sort of cropped up in my head is, has there been any talk of the symphony being taken up by other orchestras, like either anywhere else in North America and Canada and Europe, dare I say, here by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra? Has it, have you been approached or has Simon said, you know what, I, let me get on this. I want to see how we can get other orchestras, get the score playing around the world. That would be the ultimate dream, but it's very hard to go in another country's symphony orchestra. Very hard. 
we're working on it the producers are working on it but it's it's really hard before you you get into the the gang <laughs> you got to go through the business side of it yeah and the whole process and then the, the analysis there you go but i wish i really hope so my final thing to you then is outside of next june's performances of histoire saint parole what is next for you like creatively are you writing any new music i know you've been on the record saying that you didn't continue with ammonium because you said right i've said all i have to say but have you now had a new lease of life and i'm not necessarily saying we're getting a rock band together would you compose something orchestrally would you compose something for a band what are you looking at doing new are you looking at doing anything new i think you won't you won't believe it Try me. <laughs> I'm actually doing what you're doing, which is I have a new TV series of interviews, with, and I'm the interviewer oh. with the best artists in Quebec. An hour and a half big interview with each one of them uh, that we will be on uh, the internet. As uh, Again, the same thing as Ammonium Symphonic, it's on site. Uh, we've been doing that all summer. There's, uh, there's 13 episodes. There's four left that I have to do in the next month. And if you would have told me that I would do that in my life, I would never believe you. <laughs> it's amazing. And and all the people are coming to Lac Saint-Jean, which is really far. They all said... Will it be subtitled for idiots yeah. like me? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. When is this supposed to uh, make its debut? After Christmas, because we're going to do the whole uh, montage and set up and all that. And we'll announce it slowly. And... Will you be speaking or have you spoken with any of the musicians from the bands who we mentioned at the beginning, like from October and Slosh, any of those sorts of musicians or, or, or others, more contemporary musicians? Yeah, like one of them is Louis-Jean Cormier that I worked on on my, the circus project and he's the biggest star now in, in Quebec and uh, so, so talented. But it's politicians, it's actresses. Okay, not just musicians, okay. Oh, no, uh, humorists uh, all over the place. In the last five years, I did so much interviews that I was fed up talking about myself. <laughs> So I can't stand that. <laughs> oh, thank you for talking to me about yourself. No, I know, but that's not what I mean. It's just that, <laughs> no, this is special. That's not what I mean. I wanted just to reverse the process. And I'm curious about people, how they do their thing. You know, like comedians or actors, it's hard to get into a role. So uh, that's what I'm doing. Thank you so much for your time of being on the show. Really, really appreciate it. I appreciate it. And uh, you're, you're very generous. You're extremely intelligent questions, which which is so great. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, see, see you again. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I also hope that if you came into this episode not knowing anything about Harmonium, that you are now a fan or are at least tempted to go out and listen to their own music or maybe even listen to Harmonium Symphonique, the new album. The details for ordering it, should you choose to do so, will be provided in the show notes for this episode. Thanks once again to Serge for being such a wonderful guest. So after a couple of months of interview Love That Albums, I'm going back to the regular sort of roundtable discussion type of format of the show. I'll be joined by someone who's new to the Love That Album co-hosting hot seat. His name is Anthony Rotuno. Now, Anthony is the host of, I think, three podcasts, but... I know him primarily from an excellent show that he does called Glass Onion on John Lennon. Anthony's Facebook site for the podcast describes it as a podcast on the life, music and psychology of John Lennon. It really is up there with the best of the Beatles related podcasts out there. Trust me, there are a lot of Beatles-focused podcasts. Do a bit of a search, find Glass Onion on John Lennon on your podcast catcher of choice 
catch up with a few episodes of Anthony's show before he comes on to Love That Album next month. So it won't surprise you because he's a music fan that he likes other musicians besides John Lennon and the Beatles. Coming on to Love That Album gave him the opportunity to pick something else, something that he didn't have to focus on for every one of the episodes of his own show. And he suggested to me, and this is going back to last year, this has been a long time in the planning. My apologies, Anthony, my fault completely. He suggested that we talk about Nick Drake. And it really came as a surprise to me that I haven't done anything Nick Drake related on the show up to this point. But possibly that was because some part of my psyche knew that I was waiting for Anthony to come along and say, hey, can I come on the show and talk about Nick Drake? So we'll be focusing on Nick's first album, Five Leaves Left. But the truth of it is, we'll probably be talking a lot about Nick's life and all the rest of his music as well. But the main focus will be on Five Leaves Left, the debut album. So until next month, I urge you, please be nice to yourself. Please be nice to other people. Listen to some great music as well while you're at it. All the best. Until next month, cheers. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.